Hello, and welcome to Grand Dukes of the West. Episode 17, The Nicopolis Crusade, Part 2. Today we continue our series on the Nicopolis Crusade. We've already covered Hungary and the Ottomans in the 14th century, but now it's time to look at the crusading ideal itself. And once we're done with that, we can finish our preparations in Burgundy and begin the march to Nicopolis. Chapter 3, The Crusading Tradition in the 14th Century Now let us pass, in the name of God, to the exposition of King Misguided, that is, of the Christian kings who have long been ill-advised and still are. Through lack of good government, and above all, through lack of justice, which includes the faith of Jesus Christ and his holy works, and lack also of knightly discipline. First, the capital city of all Christendom, that is, the holy city of Jerusalem, the foundation stone of the Catholic faith, and then the whole kingdom, the promised land, have been lost, and conquered by King Vigilant, the Sultan of Babylon, who has held it for one or two hundred years, to the great shame and disgrace of Christian kings, alas, so ill-advised. Philippe de Mezier, in his 1395 letter to King Rishach II, translated by George W. Copeland. According to Richard Vaughn, quote, The 14th century was perhaps the golden age of the armchair crusader of enthusiastic writers on the crusade who devised elaborate but purely theoretical and literary schemes for the successful reconquest of the Holy Land. At this point in history, the crusade had evolved significantly from its form in the High Middle Ages. The last remnants of the crusader states in the Levant had fallen to the Mamluks of Egypt right around the turn of the 14th century, and the focus of the crusades was now in the Baltic with the campaigns of the Teutonic Knights against the pagan, if not for much longer, Lithuania in the Iberian Peninsula, where the Emirate of Granada was occasionally under threat, and in North Africa. But other than the case of the Teutonic Knights, there is not the same continuous drive for crusade as there was in the 11 and 1200s. The other crusading order of significance at this time was the Order of the Knights of St. John, also known as the Hospitallers. In the early 1300s, the Hospitallers had taken up residence on the island of Rhodes and used their fleet to harry the Ottomans. On the island of Cyprus was the last of the crusader states of old. The kings of Cyprus also claimed the title King of Jerusalem, but that was in name only. Furthermore, Cyprus was no longer a power of much significance, and the Venetians and Genoese competed for control over the island in order to strengthen their trading empires. Speaking of Venice and Genoa, these Italian city-states also held the remains of previous crusading conquests, although their gains mostly came from Byzantine territories seized in the Fourth Crusade. So while the territorial legacies of the Crusades in the 14th century can really only be described as underwhelming, the cultural impact of them remained as strong as ever. Philip the Bold in particular dreamed of going on a crusade. He was a prominent supporter and patron of the Knights of St. John and the Teutonic Knights, and he reportedly took the cross with his father, King John the Good, upon returning from captivity in England. Another example of John being a terrible king, but a gallant knight. In 1366, when Count Amadeus of Savoy led a crusade against the Ottomans, 
mentioned briefly in the previous chapter with the temporary capture of Gallipoli, many Burgundian knights joined the campaign. And in 1390, when Louis, Duke of Bourbon, led a crusade into Tunis, several leading members of Philip's regime joined him, such as Philip of Artois, Count of Eu, Guy de la Tremoille, Guillaume de la Tremoille, and Philippe de Bar, and whenever any of his men went on crusade, Philip would help fund the expedition. Philip began making tentative plans to launch a crusade before Sigismund's pleas reached their most desperate stage. Throughout the early 1390s, Philip the Bold had been in contact with Venice and Hungary in order to launch a crusade. Philip of Artois had journeyed east in 1393 with a small force to help Sigismund fight the Ottomans, and likely helped to establish a working relationship between the King of Hungary and the Duke of Burgundy. Philip the Bold was one of the biggest advocates of a crusade in the negotiations with England. In fact, it has even been posited, although inconclusively, that Philip was the one who suggested to Sigismund that he should request aid from France, knowing that if Philip himself preached a crusade, he would run into opposition from Louis of Orléans. But the standard bearer of the crusading ideal in the late 14th century had to be Philippe de Mezier. De Mezier dedicated his life to either crusading or preaching crusade. At 19, he joined a crusade into Anatolia, and after that made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. On his way back from the Holy Land, de Mezier made his way into the service of the King of Cyprus and remained there for about two decades. Upon the death of his patron, Philippe de Mezier returned to France, where he was welcomed back as a hero and became a member of King Charles V's royal council. When Charles V died, Philippe took up writing and made it his life mission to revive the great crusading spirit. In his writings, de Mezier blames the fall of the crusader states on the division of the crusaders in their aims, strategies, and rivalries. Watch this space. In order to promote unity among future crusaders, he decided to form a new order of chivalry known as the Order of the Passion. The Order of the Passion was supposed to promote discipline and camaraderie amongst the crusaders from all over Christendom and to further encourage the great lords to go on crusade. But an order of chivalry could only do so much when two of the most powerful Christian states were at each other's throats. So in order to further the cause of crusade, Philippe de Mezier became one of the leading advocates for peace between England and France. In this mission, he was helped by another advocate of crusade, Robert de Menon, who claimed that God called him to make peace between France and England so that they could lead a joint crusade against the Ottomans. These urgings for peace actually did help. Both King Charles VI of France and King Richard II of England were in contact with de Menon and de Mezier, and the young kings were enraptured by the promises of glory preached. In between negotiations over the sovereignty of Aquitaine, control over Norman and Breton ports, and all the other contentious issues, Philip the Bold and John of Gaunt began preparations to go on crusade. The two royal uncles were soon joined by Louis of Orléans, and before long, an ambitious plan to have some of the most powerful men in Christendom lead a huge Anglo-French force east was in the making. So when envoys from Sigismund reached France and England, they were received well. Sigismund was hoping for additional soldiers to help defend his borders and push the Ottomans south, hopefully out of the Balkans entirely, but more realistically to remove Ottoman suzerainty from Serbia and Bulgaria, and to replace that with Hungarian Catholic dominance. The Crusaders, on the other hand, had much more ambitious goals. Philippe de Mezier encouraged the kings of France and England to unite in order to take not only the Balkans, but also Anatolia, the Levant, and Egypt from Islam, a wild goal that shouldn't require hindsight to be seen as unrealistic. 
Like most crusading in the 14th century, the ambitious preparations of the crusade looked impressive on paper, but the reality of it left something to be desired. Charles and Richard were never going to be able to go on crusade. Richard's domestic political situation was far too volatile, even with, or possibly in part because of, a potential peace with France, to be able to leave his kingdom for an extended period, while Charles's mental state was far too volatile to do the same. So like I mentioned earlier, the leadership of the crusade was left to John of Gaunt, Philip the Bold, and Louis of Orléans, but even these men would not be able to make it. As progress was made in the negotiations at Lollingham, the three leaders became preoccupied with other issues. In late 1395, John of Gaunt was struck with illness and was simultaneously dealing with political issues in Aquitaine leading up to the peace. Meanwhile, both Philip the Bold and Louis of Orléans judged the domestic situation in France to require them, or, just as likely, Louis saw Philip's absence as an opportunity to increase his own power at his uncle's expense, and Philip knew that he had to protect his position at court above all else. The negotiations at Lollingham, which had at first accelerated the plans for the crusade, now came in the way of them. Negotiations began to stall as the planned departure date for the crusade was approaching, and so Philip and John knew that they had to continue working for a local peace before they could engage in a far-off war. With the three leading men of the crusade bowing out, command of the expedition was given to John, Count of Nevers, the 24-year-old son and heir of Philip the Bold. Chapter 4. Preparations and the March East Prince mondain, je vous requiers et proie que vous m'aidiez les Sarrasins conquérent. Je suis la loi, soyez avec moi, pour conquérir de cœur de sainte terre. Princes, today, I ask you and pray that you will help me to conquer the Saracens. I am the law. Come with me to conquer the heart of the Holy Land. Eustache Deschamps, circa 1395. One of the issues impacting the organization of the 1396 Crusade was the Western Schism. Since 1378, there had been two rival popes, based in Rome and Avignon. While France followed Avignon, both England and Hungary recognized the Roman pope. So when Sigismund began to call for a crusade, it was to Rome that he first went. And while the Nicopolis Crusade ended up being a primarily Burgundian French enterprise, it was done under the aegis of Rome and not Avignon. The peace negotiations at Lollingham had tried for years to get France and England to work together to end the schism, but in the end the issue was tabled so an agreement could be reached. So as preparations for the crusade began, it was necessary for John of Nevers and the rest of his contingent to get a dispensation from the Pope in Avignon to work with schismatics. Fortunately for the cause of the crusade, the Avignonese Pope was not unwilling to grant the dispensation. It is likely that the Pope both was in favor of a crusade generally, and knew that opposition to the project would damage his own credibility, which was already beginning to waver. So the Pope in Avignon duly granted John's dispensation, and furthermore, sent supplies to Burgundy to help with his expedition. And with the withdrawal of John of Gaunt and Louis of Orléans from the crusade, the project took on a distinctly Burgundian flavor. While Philip would not go on the journey himself, it was now led by his son, and he would end up funding a large portion of the expedition. Throughout 1395, Philip and his family set about coaxing his territories for money for the crusade. Richard Vaughan estimates that Philip was able to raise about 400,000 francs from his territories for it, 
with an additional 100,000 francs coming as gifts from King Charles VI and the Lord of Milan, although he had initially sought the far larger sum of 700,000. To put this sum in perspective, Richard Vaughn also estimates Philip's average income from around this time from taxes, aids, and gifts to be about 440,000 francs a year. Furthermore, when we compare this to the amount that Philip spent on the grand double wedding at Combray, and the amount that Philip spent building the charter house of Champmol, both costing him around 150,000 francs, we see just how expensive of an undertaking the crusade was. Philip was one of the richest princes in Europe at the time, and this project was really stretching his finances. Part of the reason for the exorbitant cost of the crusade was that the march to Hungary would not be some stoic, ascetic affair. The crusaders, or at least those connected to the Burgundian court, were decked out in finery. Quote, the distinctive feature of the preparations for this voyage was magnificence, not efficiency, writes Dr. Atia. Articles of the most sumptuous nature were either purchased or specially manufactured. Tents, pavilions, banners, standards, horse covers, all were made of rich green velvet, and all were heavily embroidered with the arms of Navarre in Cypriot gold thread. Of costly tents and pavilions alone, there were 24 cartloads. Saddles and horse equipment, decorated with gold, silver, and ivory, and ornamented with precious stones, were not wanting in large numbers. John's personal company was the largest of the crusade, with 150 men-at-arms. Of these, five take special precedence. Jean de Vienne, the Admiral of France, Guy de la Tremoille, Guillaume de la Tremoille, Philippe de Bar, and Udard de Chasseron. These men, along with Jean Boussicot, Marshal of France, Jacques de Bourbon, Count of La Marche, Henri de Bar, Angeron de Cousy, and Philip of Artois, Count of Eu, made up John's Council of Advisors, which, as John was an inexperienced 24-year-old, actually did much of the leading of the crusade. While John had helped his father out with various governing and political tasks over the years, he was still untested and not at all independent. Philip maintained control over Navarre even though his son was technically its count, and John didn't even have his own household. The crusade would be John's first taste of leadership, and even then, all the arrangements and appointments were still handled by his father. John's company was drawn from all of Philip's domains. Both Burgundian and Low Country knights joined the count, including several illegitimate sons of Louis of Mala. And emphasizing that this crusade was a primarily Burgundian affair, when the time came to depart, the crusaders began their journey at Dijon. In April 1396, the crusaders gathered in the Burgundian capital, and after about two weeks of feasting and praying, departed for Hungary. Before they left, Philip was said to have presented John with the sword of Godfrey of Bouillon, a leader of the First Crusade and King of Jerusalem, and ordered his son to insist on fighting in the vanguard. The basic unit of the crusader forces was the lance. A lance was made up of a heavily armored and mounted man-at-arms supported by a crossbowman or an archer, a page, and occasionally a pikeman or other light infantry soldier. In general, the lance centered on the knight, with the other members usually providing support. The focus of the crusading army was heavy cavalry. While units not organized around lances did join the crusade, notably a few companies of Genoese crossbowmen, the heavy cavalry charge was the central tactic in the minds of the leaders of the crusade. This is in part because of how the French tradition of warfare developed in the Middle Ages. The French army was centered on the knight and the martial legacy of the old nobility, 
And as Burgundy was an agricultural and traditionally feudal duchy, the Franco-Burgundian contingent played into that tradition of warfare. This method of fighting was similar to that used by previous crusading armies. In general, and I'm painting with the broadest of brushes here, the armies of the crusaders tended to focus on heavy cavalry, with the heavy cavalry charge being their greatest weapon. This can be contrasted with the Ottoman army, who followed a more traditionally eastern and steppe-inspired tradition of warfare that focused on light, arrow-wielding cavalry and lightly armored infantry archers. Meanwhile, the Hungarian army actually drew from both traditions and occupied something of a middle ground. Neither style of warfare is inherently superior to the other, but the edge is generally given to the archers. While a heavy cavalry charge was devastating to face, and a successful one would often break an opposing army, a heavy barrage of arrows made it hard to successfully pull off a charge. So as the crusading army was being put together, its leaders were planning on using the charge more than anything else as their main tool. In total, the size of the Franco-Burgundian contingent is generally estimated to be somewhere between 6 and 10,000 men strong, with a thousand of those being knights. One man who wasn't there was William of Bavaria. The Wittelsbach prince had intended on joining his Burgundian brother-in-law, but upon requesting leave from his father Albert, Count of Haino, Holland, and Zealand, he was explicitly prohibited from joining the crusade. Despite the close alliance between Philip the Bold and Albert of Bavaria, Albert believed the crusade to be a foolhardy endeavor and did not intend on wasting any of his men on it. Although Albert ended up being proved right, he was in the minority in opposing the crusade. As the expedition marched through the Holy Roman Empire, many German princes and even burghers joined the expedition. In the spirit of the original plan for the crusade, a small English contingent, possibly led by one of John of Gaunt's sons, joined up as well. These national contingents were joined by a handful of individuals from the rest of Christendom. Still though, by far the largest force was that of France. The bulk of the crusading force was said to have left Dijon for the town of Montbéliard near the eastern border of the county of Burgundy in late August. From there, they crossed out of Philip's territories into Alsace and then crossed the Rhine south of Strasbourg. After crossing the Rhine, the crusaders marched to Regensburg in Bavaria, picking up additions along the way. At Regensburg, they embarked onto the Danube River and finished their journey to Hungary via river cruise. But it was not an express journey to Hungary from Regensburg. A little downriver from Regensburg was Straubing, a Bavarian principality ruled by another of Albert of Bavaria's sons. John spent some time with his brother-in-law, who also did not join the crusade, before continuing down the Danube to Vienna. In Vienna, John was hosted by yet another brother-in-law, Leopold IV of Austria. Leopold hosted the crusaders for a while, and also provided them with additional supplies and boats. Overflowing with generosity, Leopold also loaned John 100,000 ducats to help pay for the crusade, as apparently John had already burnt through much of the half-million francs provided by his father. While the main body of the crusade was still in Vienna, John dispatched a few of his men ahead to let Sigismund know that the crusaders were near, and finally, in either June or July, the crusaders reached the Hungarian capital of Buda. Once in Buda, the Franco-Burgundian contingent rendezvoused with the Hungarian army, a contingent of the Knights of St. John, and several crusaders who made their way to Buda independently. To help the crusade, Venice had agreed to provide a fleet of 44 ships to help transport the crusaders and possibly engage in some light naval combat. With everyone now assembled at Buda, Sigismund threw a huge feast before getting down to business with a council of war. 
and it is in this council that the first cracks in the crusade begin to appear. When Bayezid had declared war on Hungary earlier in 1396, he had announced that Ottoman forces would be in Hungary by May. However, Bayezid had gotten distracted by other endeavors, and in July, the Ottoman army was still not there. Still wary of the threat, Sigismund wanted to take a defensive approach. The Crusaders, on the other hand, had been harboring notions of driving the Turks out of the Balkans and furthermore out of Anatolia. They imagined a grand victory and the revival of the Crusader states, but that could not be accomplished in a defensive campaign. Sigismund was accused of cowardice, and it seemed as if the Crusaders would go on the offensive with or without him, so he gave in and agreed to join them and cross into Ottoman territory. Upon leaving Buda, the Crusaders and Hungarians split up. A portion of the Hungarian army decided to first march through Transylvania to Wallachia to pick up and ensure the compliance of a force led by Voivod Mircea. Meanwhile, the Crusaders and the remainder of the Hungarian army began to follow the Danube south and east before crossing at the Iron Gate near the town of Orsheva. Upon crossing the Danube, they left Hungarian and largely Catholic territory and passed into Ottoman-held land where the majority of the population was Orthodox. The march through Catholic land had not been easy on the inhabitants, and the army had been marching with lax discipline, and the occasional seizure of goods and active pillage was not uncommon. Now quoting Dr. Atiyah, quote, When the bearers of the cross came into the Balkans, they carried their excess to the utmost extreme, and wrought havoc amidst the harmless Orthodox Serbians and Bulgarians, whose sin was that they had succumbed to the Turkish onslaught. But other than innocent civilians, the first target of the Crusaders once in Ottoman territory was the town of Vidin. Vidin was the capital of a small Bulgarian principality of the same name under Ottoman control. It was only garrisoned by a small Ottoman force. The governor was a Bulgarian under Ottoman suzerainty rather than an Ottoman officer, and Vidin had only become Ottoman a few years earlier. So upon seeing the much larger crusading army approach, the governor expelled the garrison and surrendered to the crusaders. The crusaders, in turn, massacred the Ottoman garrison, and upon this victory, John of Nevers was knighted, having now seen combat. The Battle of Vidin, if it can even be called that, served to bolster the confidence of the crusaders. After all, they had just wiped out an Ottoman force, even if they had a huge numerical advantage. After Vidin, the Crusader force reached the town of Oryahovo. Oryahovo had much better defenses than Vidin, and the garrison was stronger. But undeterred, the Crusaders decided to besiege and attack the city anyways. Now Sigismund and the Hungarian contingent were behind the main host of Crusaders. So when the Crusaders decided to attack Oryahovo, they made that decision alone. As the siege dragged on, every attempted storming of the city was rebuffed. And just as it looked like the Crusaders would have to raise the siege, Sigismund and the Hungarian soldiers arrived. With the fresh reinforcements giving the Crusaders a huge numerical advantage, they once more decided to try and storm the city. The defenders of Oryahovo, exhausted by their previous efforts, sent an embassy to discuss terms of surrender, but they arrived too late. The first of the Crusaders had already made it over the walls of the city, and according to the norms of warfare at the time, that meant that no quarter had to be given. Oryahovo was razed to the ground, and its inhabitants were massacred apart from some of the wealthiest citizens who were captured in hopes of a profitable ransom. From Oryahovo, the Crusaders continued their march towards Nicopolis. Along the way, they took a handful of other small towns and villages. 
As the Crusaders continued their march east, survivors of their rampage fled towards Bayezid to update the Sultan on the progress of the army. And in the second week of September, 1396, the Crusaders finally came within sight of the city of Nicopolis. Thank you to Gary Giraud from the French History Podcast and Emmanuel Dubois from the Lafayette We Are Here Podcast for reading the quotes for this episode. Thank you to my patrons, Christine, Comte de Chenonceau, Elliot, Graf von Gravenstein, Anthony, Comte de Chateauneuf-Nauxois, and James, Graf von Temsa, and to my Knights of the Duchy. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you can support me on patreon.com slash Burgundy. But really, the best way to support the show is by telling people about it and reviewing it on your podcast app of choice. I want as many people as possible to hear about the stories of Valois Burgundy, and spreading the word about this show is the best way to help it grow. If you want to keep up with the show, you can find me on twitter.com at Valois Burgundy. You can also email me at granddukesofthewest at gmail.com and check out the podcast website for maps, images, sources, and more at granddukesofthewest.com. Once again, thank you so much for listening.